Down Syndrome Queensland are the peak body for intellectual disability in Queensland. We drive change, support inclusion and are on a quest for equality so that people with intellectual disabilities can take their rightful place as valuable members of the community. Down Syndrome Queensland also provides practical and emotional support, comfort and opportunities to people with intellectual disability, their families and support networks, particularly in regional areas. DSQ supports an inclusive environment for people with an intellectual disability, which allows them to live their best lives. We believe it is important to respect the rights of parents to choose the development path that is best for their loved one. DSQ is here to support them along the way. To find out more about how you can help, to volunteer or to support the work of Down Syndrome Queensland, go to downsyndrome.org.au forward slash QLD. We acknowledge the First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land we are on today. We acknowledge and pay respect to all elders past, present and emerging. The Now and the Future podcast is an exciting way of sharing members' stories of opportunities, challenges and provide support and expert advice for Down Syndrome community. Down Syndrome Queensland's vision is to support, advocate for empower people with Down Syndrome to take their rightful places as valuable and contributing members of their community both now into the future. Hi everyone, it's Michael Harrison from Down Syndrome Queensland here, and I'm excited to introduce today's special episode of the Now and the Future podcast. In recognition of International Men's Day on 19 November, today is part one of a two-part discussion where I sit down with former Brisbane Broncos, Queensland Maroons and International Rugby League player Darius Boyd and Michael Crutcher, former editor of Queensland's Courier-Mail newspaper and now CEO of the communications company 55Coms. Darius has battled with mental health throughout his life and now dedicates much of his time to telling his story to help raise awareness for mental health. Michael has experienced the pressures and scrutiny, plus the highs and lows that come with editing Queensland's largest news publication. Both gentlemen are also husbands, fathers, and trying to balance family, career, and their own mental well-being. This is a fascinating discussion and a thought-provoking, and it can be related to everyone's day-to-day life. So, without further ado, enjoy part one of the Now and the Future's Men's Podcast. Uh, I guess, Darius, starting with yourself. So, you, 18, 2006, you were part of the last Broncos grand, grand final winning side. You must have been devastated a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Unfortunately, but... When yeah. it didn't quite go to plan. Um, so you're part of that team, and I remember reading a lot in the in the newspapers and and on social media that you, know, you were the next big thing in rugby league coming through. There's a lot of talk about you. Um, how did that feel? I guess being an 18 year old in that, um, how did that make you feel? Yeah, I think I struggled a little bit to be honest. And I've, as a kid growing up, had a small family dynamic at home and a bit of you know trouble with um, you know, trauma and mental health in my family. So. We didn't have the greatest upbringing in that sense as well. And then I think, you know, being a young, quiet, shy kid, um, you know, at a sport excellent school, you know, rugby league was my you know, focus and my goal. Yeah. But 
I wasn't the most popular kid at school. Um, yeah. Wasn't the, uh, yeah, didn't have the heaps of friends and didn't go to all the parties and do the things yeah. you do as a you know, 16, 17, 18 year old. So coming out of school and going straight into the Broncos and, and Wayne picking me in that first season was um, yeah, a whirlwind for me. I probably um, didn't understand what I was getting myself into in that sense. I thought I was just playing rugby league and, yeah. and, and furthering my career. But you know, there's so much that comes with it, the you know, media, the criticism, scrutiny, you know, sponsorships, yeah. you know, uh, ambassador roles. You know, there's so many other parts of being, I guess, a professional sports person that comes with you know, public figure and role model yeah. in a sense. And you know, I wasn't equipped to deal with that yet. Yeah. I hadn't learned those tips and tools. And you know, I really struggled with it for a long period yeah. of time. And I'm lucky I had Wayne because Wayne was that mentor and, and guided me along that path. But um, yeah. you know, I still really struggle with it. Yeah, okay. And just um, digressing with, with, with Crutch, how, how, did, how did you guys come across paths? Where did you come to Now, you were the editor of the Courier Mail. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, well, um, I was a sports writer before that. I spent about 10 years as a sports writer and um, covered most, mostly cricket and I would travel with the Australian team and cover summers here and tours overseas. But I left that after about six years and went into general news and filled different roles at the Courier Mail, Chief of Staff, etc. cetera. Um, and then I became editor in 2010, did that for about three and a half years. So I actually didn't cross paths with Darius when he was playing because I just left sports writing in his first season. So I didn't cross paths with him till about 2015 and the, the Broncos were one of our clients and um, Paul White, the Broncos CEO at the time, a, a wonderful guy, Whitey just asked me to just catch up with Darius and he was back in Brisbane after being three years at St George and three years at um, at Newcastle and he was back yeah. in Brisbane and just asked me to catch up with Darius just to have a coffee and I, I didn't really know much about Darius at the time except he'd obviously had a wonderful career at that time. He was back in Brisbane, but he'd had some mental health challenges in 2014, which I know we'll talk about. And I just, that's all I really knew what I'd seen in the media. And it wasn't until we got to know each other that I actually got to understand his background. And I still think I've had the good fortune to cover lots of high profile people in my 10 years as a sports writer. I still think Darius' story is one of the most fascinating stories of high profile athletes that I've seen in the last last generation and where he came from, what he was able to achieve with a pretty tough family background and where he is now with Kayla as his his wife and their three daughters. I think it's an extraordinary achievement. And we fleshed that out. Darius and I worked together on his book in yeah. 2020 during COVID times yeah. and I didn't really have time to do a book and Darbs didn't have a lot of time but then COVID hit and no yeah. one could go anywhere. So over that time I really got to, um, I guess, know Darius's story as, as well as anyone doing that book with him. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's great to be sitting here today just to talk about that story and anything that I can can help with through my own journey as well. But I guess as all journalists are observers, that's what we're trained to be, observers and um, and commentators. So um, that's why I found Dara's story so um, unique. Yeah, so I guess being a, being a journalist, being a, a professional athlete, you know, there's a lot of pressure that comes with that and in any job, in any life, you know, we do that. Mm. And, and I often think about being an athlete like yourself, um, it's that you're always potentially one injury away from it all being over, yeah. right? And it's a short career and you would have had to grow up with that expectation of everyone on you, the criticism that comes with it. Um, Michael, as, as we spoke about, you know, you were the editor for the Courier Mail, so you would have had everyone all over you for that. Mm. How did you guys deal with that? And I guess talking from a 
dad's perspective or a father's men's men's perspective um we all have this habit not to really talk about it as we said before how did you deal with how do you deal with the weight of expectation and pressure for aspects of life yeah i think for me <clears throat> probably took me 10 years to be honest i think uh, like i said it's got thrown in the deep end a little bit with rugby league and professional sports at at 18 and um you know like i said wayne was great he actually held me away from you know, media and, and other things for about 12 months um so i didn't have to um, be involved in some of those commitments that may be uh, challenging for someone of that age and, and my probably background as well. But um, it was something that took uh, took me, like I said, about probably ten years as far as understanding uh, the game and what's expected, and even understanding my own you know, general thoughts and feelings, and behaviours. Uh, I was learning how to be just you know a young man and probably um, failing in some aspects in that, as well as being a professional athlete and a friend and a. And you know, eventually being a husband and um, other things. So I think I really struggled for a long period of time. It wasn't probably until I had to get some professional help with my own mental health that I realised that I learned some of the tips and tools around you know, um, you know pressure, criticism, scrutiny, um, my own how to be aware of my own thoughts and feelings and how to you know, yeah. self-regulate with different strategies. So I think it was something that yeah, it wasn't until I really put my hand up to get professional help 10 years into my career that I have managed to understand what I needed to do my own well-being, but then also how to um, play the game, so to speak, with all the um, ways you're pulled from professional sports, but definitely yeah. took some time. Yeah. And what about you, Crouch? How did you yeah, deal think with all in, that? In journalism, I mean, journalism is observing, as I said, but it's also criticising when you think there is something there to, to call out, especially in politics. But and so at age 35 when I became editor of the Crew Mail, I was responsible for everything the Crew Mail put out. So I had a lot of, I guess, interaction with politicians, premiers, prime ministers, that type of thing who were unhappy with stories or happy with stories and pretty much anyone that wasn't happy with whatever we did. For me, I, what I, I did at the time was I guess I'm lucky that I've got a bit of a thick skin but I've got a few friends, long-term friends who I use as barometers. Mm. And I was criticized daily at the Career Mail as editor, mm. daily. I was criticized on radio, wherever, in emails, text, social media, goodness me. Mm. Uh, but Ainsley, my wife, we've been together since high school, about 30 years. And I've got a couple of mates. Now, if they tell me that I'm out of line, that really yeah. to me yeah. means something on that front but that pressure is so so I, I would use them as a barometer I didn't really care what people said to me if they didn't mean something to me um, yeah. as such and but I, I found they were a good way for me to help to handle that because yeah. you do get thrown in the deep end in those sort of roles and it's it's all new to you and you're uh, uh, trying to work your way through it but that type of the support network was really important to me and what about uh, I guess the one of the things that you often hear people giving advice when you're an up-and-coming manager and something like that. Yeah. Don't take it personally. It's not personal. But, geez, it feels personal <laughs> some days. How did you – what did you do to separate that? from? How did you train yourself not to take things personally? Yeah, you know, I think like Hutch mentioned, like, you, know, you have to build a bit of trust and rapport and a bit of belief in someone. I think have, you know – Take the, uh, the advice from the right people. I think that's important. I remember Wayne, who used to say, um, if you listen to people in the stands, you might as well sit with them. I think yeah. you know, what he means by that is just yeah. make sure you're taking advice off people that um, have your best interests at heart or have you know, um, constructive advice mm. for you. So you know, in the world of you know, social media and all the other external pressures, mm. 
that we all face today is that you know make sure you have that core group, whether it's your support network or you know healthy relationships in your in your network, whether that might be you know, your boss at work, it might be your family at home, could be you know, other avenues, professional support, but making sure you're taking that advice from them because they're the ones that have your best interests at heart and people that you've never met or that you know want to be a keyboard mm. warrior, then you've got to try and put that to the side and put that where it is. And that's not easy, but if you understand where you should be taking advice, then I think you'll be able to deal with the criticism a lot better. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I used to say to politicians who would be very cranky at something that, we'd put in the paper, I would say to them, I'm not criticising you as a person, I'm criticising something you've done as a as a minister or a prime minister or a premier. And there was a big difference in that. I didn't really know these people as, mm. as humans, I, you know, but if we saw something we'd call out, um, we'd do that. So I used to have to actually throw that back to myself to yeah. say, well, what people are saying and is yeah. that the same test you put up to yourself? Because I honestly didn't know some of these people well enough it wasn't personal criticism because I didn't know them well enough, but it was criticism of their job, which was our role in that area. So I would often bring that back to myself. Yeah. I think Crutch makes a good point. So when you think about, I did it for a long period of time, but attaching your self-worth to your job, I think that's yes. really important. So if you can detach it, which you should, you know, if you do a bad, have a bad day at rugby league or a bad day in the office, doesn't mean you're a bad person. I yeah. think when mm-hmm. some, someone may be criticising you, it doesn't mean exactly that you are a bad person. It just means yeah. maybe you didn't do your job to the best of your ability on that day. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm. You know, we all get mm. make mistakes. We all get it wrong. Yeah. Doesn't mean we're a bad person. So detaching your self worth from your your job is really really important. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you, you say that because I remember um, listening to one of the NRL podcasts, and I think it was Gordon Tallis was saying it's not it's not the person, it's the jersey that they're cheering for. So you know, if you, you know, if you're playing for the Broncos this year, all the Broncos fans love you. You're playing for the the Knights next year, they all hate you because you're wearing a different coloured jersey. So I guess it's keeping that personal aspect at it and it's not you know, attaching your own self-worth to the jersey that you're in. That's that fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're looking at, if we just go back again to, to your career, Darius, so 2010, okay, so this is a pretty good resume, right? Two, two NRL premierships, Clive Churchill medal, medal in the middle of that Maroons magic era. Uh, you're playing for Australia, you've met your love or your lo- of your life. So if I'm looking at that from the outside, everything looks pretty good, right? But is it fair to say that wasn't really the case? Yeah, it was interesting. I guess at that point in time, things were really good for me and my wife. And I think because I, from my childhood, I'd probably learnt and learnt the wrong way to put rugby league first and everything else second. So family, friends, other yeah. things second. And um, I needed to change that. But at that point, I didn't understand that. I hadn't learnt, you know, the tricks and tools around what was you know, good for my well-being and, and sustainable long term. So when rugby league was going well, then everything else seemed to be you know, well in my life. Where wasn't until a couple of years later that you know rugby league wasn't going well. I was in Newcastle. I wasn't playing well. I was injured. Um, you know, having criticism, scrutiny, a couple of other things that then my life started to fall down. And I realised that you know I hadn't dealt with my childhood and other things in my life and some of my actions and behaviours were, um, I suppose, that of a you know 27 year old you know adult in society. So it was 2010 was a great year for me personally. I achieved some amazing things in rugby league. Like I said I met my future wife and um, things were going really, really well. But um, it was a bit of a mask, a bit of an um, unrealistic world because I hadn't dealt with um, you know, a lot of things I needed to deal with personally. And then um, you know, when, again, my self-worth was attached to rugby league. So when that come yeah. falling down and crashing down a little bit a couple of years later, then whole life started to seem the same way. That's with Darius' story that I mentioned before, one of the things I've found 
so interesting about his background and getting to know Kayla, Dubs' wife, and they're an extraordinary couple. They, they bounce off each other so well. They've got such interesting backgrounds uh, as individuals. They've got a, a wonderful relationship and, and three daughters. But talking to Kayla about that time in her life mm. when they were just getting together and Darius's version of what was happening in his life was really interesting. But if you go back to Darbs's background, I mean, Darbs, you know, will you will never know who your father is. Mm. You resign to that. You'll never know who your dad is. You had a small family, your mum, her brother and your grandparents, your mum's your mum's parents, and you had two father figures in that in that set up, your uncle and your, and your grandfather. And by the time you were 11, both of them had died. Your uncle died of, of cancer. Um, so when I started to get to know Darb's story better and saw the way that his mum had mental health challenges when he was young and the way that he dealt with that and could keep himself on the straight and narrow, and like he said before, it was about rugby league. If his rugby league was going well, it was all good. But that was, I guess, the life raft you clung to, Darb's, wasn't it? And when that... When you were going well, it was all, it was okay. But when the life raft started to um, started to sink, you were sinking with it. Well, and I guess that's the, that's the the risky part of what I was doing is that rugby league and you know, yeah, it's professional sports. is it's, yeah. it's a roller coaster. There's ups and downs. There's injuries. There's criticism. There's there's pressure. There's failure. There's so many things that come with the game. And uh, putting rugby league number one at my in my you know late teens and early adult years, it, it really probably did save me and get me on a good path. But then it was always going to come back to haunt me in, in some sense. And that was when it was probably lucky I had six years of success, my first six years in rugby league, it was at the Broncos and the Dragons. And then, like I said, went to Newcastle, very grateful for that experience yeah. purely because I you know, learned so much about myself and um, and in the, such a good space I am today because of my challenges in Newcastle. But at the same time, that was when you know things really started to fall apart and I had to really probably... Someone said once you have to um, you sometimes get dealt a plate of consequences and that was coming to me yeah. at some point and that mm. was in Newcastle. But that's not an uncommon thing for a lot of people, right? Because if you rugby league was your, your job, mm. you know, a lot of people put their job before their family, whether they want to or they don't want mm. to, it just career gets like that. And I dare say for a lot of people it'd be the same sort of thing, right? When work's going well, everything's mm. going well. We all have highs and lows in work when mm. all of a sudden the market turns or things change, work becomes down and mm. that then starts to impact your, your personal life as mm. well. So mm. uh, that's the interesting thing is how do you differentiate that balance between prioritising this one and this one so when work's down, everything's not down or, you know, or, mm. or finding that balance in life as to what's number one, what's number two. What's, mm. I always joke around that... Um, you know, when, when you get to your dying day, you're not going to, and you're lying on your deathbed, you're not going to say, oh, geez, I remember that P&L from June 2023. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. You're going to remember yeah. your family and, and the good times with those people. Is yeah. that, mm. you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think I've done a bit of study over the last 10 years and trying to understand and probably marry up, I guess, my lived experience with some knowledge and skills and to talk about rewiring our, our brains a lot and about uh, how we kind of focus on um, we took you know the measure of success that we're mm. taught. You talk about job and you know, salary and mm. job title and other things. Where you know, a better measure is you know you know physical and mental health. You know our experiences, mm. our memories. You know, yes, I think that's a really important thing to remember. Is that and talk a bit about detaching from self worth mm. and and, yeah. and that um, to your job. But um, I think it's really important when you think about you know um, 
we think we're wanting these, you know, the higher job, mm. the salary, the nicer yeah. car, the bigger house, when actually mm. our brains want, you know, the experiences, the memories, those um, yeah. times with loved ones. You know, as you said on your deathbed, you don't mm. think about mm. the bigger house you bought. You think about all yeah. the time you had with your loved ones and your family and how maybe yeah. you wish you spent more time. And I think that's something yeah. that we all need to do is kind of rewire our brains into thinking, hey, you know, as much as, you know, I've got young children at the moment and as much as I'm trying to grow my next phase of life and yeah. career and I've finished rugby league, I still want to be really home and present because I know, in, you know, in years mm. to come, they won't want to be around dad anymore. Yeah. They want to go and do yeah, their own thing. So time, right? try yeah. and, and spend as much time as I can now and worry about career-driven aspirations, mm. you know, a bit later in, 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 in their, their lives. Yeah. Do you think the world's changing like that? Do you think COVID has had much to do with people, a bit of a reset? Or definitely, and I wonder if it's starting to change back though. Like yeah. I, I, I definitely changed. I've no doubt about that in a corporate sense in particular. But I wonder if it's starting to go back a little bit to what it was. I'm sort of hearing that from different people I'm mixed with. That sort of an expectation, you know, back of the office. In some places, it's starting to you know change. So I guess those old habits that we we knew, you know, starting to come back a bit. I think, but it's up to people. I, I think the younger the younger generation do it fairly well. I think they do keep yeah. those experiences. I mean, let's face it, when Nick, when you and I were in our early 20s, we weren't going overseas for holidays. Yeah. You know, it's a different mindset now, I think. So I think over time that will change. I think for people in their 40s, 50s, et cetera, probably some of those old habits, and if they're managers, that, that changes it. I mean, I, I had it in, I had a stark example in my career because I was sacked as editor of the Career Mail at 38. So I'd done that job for three and a half years and I was sacked. And from with four of us around the country as editors were sacked in two days. I knew that would probably happen one day. It's a lot of being a newspaper editor. So when you go from, I guess, having that perceived power as editor of, a, of the you know, biggest news outlet in the state so the next day not having it gone that day it's a it's a real i guess test of where your priorities are because it's How just to deal with that i sort of knew it was coming for probably about two months so I, I i could sort of see the writing on the wall uh, and i didn't do anything wrong at all i didn't do anything my my performance and my numbers were all fine but it's it's newspapers and the media i was lucky because my main core of my friends were not my work friends. Yeah. So when I was, you know, I was sacked, it wasn't like all of my mates were my workmates. They yeah. were older sort of friends. I had had three boys at the time, five, three and one. So there was plenty going on in the house. There wasn't much yeah. time to, to do that. But what I actually did for three weeks was just reset in the yeah. sense I really did nothing for three weeks, yeah. at least maybe four weeks. I knew I wanted to start my own business, but I just had to get my head in there. So I really enjoyed being able to just hang with the kids yeah. um, and just try and process it all because I went from working really long days, yeah. really long days, to uh, having no work yeah. at all. So, so from a, uh, I guess this relates to a lot of what we've been talking about, from a, a self-esteem perspective. So you, you had this job and all of a sudden you haven't got it the next mm. day. Um, how did you manage that? to not let it get to you and not think it's me. I always saw, like Darb said, you don't tie your worth to your job. But I always thought that, you know, I would get phone calls regularly from prime ministers, premiers, ministers, just regularly. But I always knew it was because of the position I was in. It wasn't because of me as an individual. Yeah. Like, you know, the moment that that 
job changed, they would bring the next person that was yeah. there. So I guess I always divorced myself from that a little bit. Yeah. It was a privilege to do the job. Like it, it was a privilege and sometimes I get phone calls from Prime Ministers while I had three kids in the car fighting and screaming and so forth. It was actually quite funny. Yeah. When you look back on it, it was yeah. quite ridiculous. It was, yeah. you know, it was, it, it, it was never anything that I sort of really embraced and said, well, this is about me. It wasn't about me. I was one of however many people had edited the Korean Mail over the span of 160 years mm. was always going to pass to someone else. So I guess I always had that in my mind. I know some other people don't, and that's an issue that Darps talks about. Yeah. If you put your self-worth in your job worth, well, when it goes, you've got yourself in a serious situation. And yeah. so I, I guess I was fortunate. I always found it fairly you know, unrealistic, a privilege to do it, but I knew yeah. it would move on at some time. And when it moved on, you just had to reset everything and, and go again. Yeah, okay. I always talk about gratitude a lot yes. and being grateful for things. It's something I had to learn. I put my hand up and went to that mental health facility midway through my career, but it's something that, you know, whether it's much mentioned, he's always grateful to, you know, have that job. Yeah. Um, and then you go home the next day, you don't have the job, you're grateful, you've got a wife and three, mm. three kids yeah. running around. Yeah. You know? So yeah. there's always things to be grateful for and have yeah. gratitude. You know, for me, I mean, I, you know, a lot of ups and downs through rugby league, yeah. you know, um, going to that mental health facility, mm. then coming back to the Broncos, you know, losing the grand final, I had my daughter born, mm. yeah. you know, my grandmother passed away, then I was named captain, mm. captaincy was gone, then I was retired, you know, so mm. it's just the roller coaster of highs and lows. But, you know, uh, being the captain or being part of the Broncos, always, in that last few years anyway, I always thought about, you know, gratitude and how grateful I was to mm. have that role. I never thought I owned it, never thought it was mine, just thought I was, you know, occupying that job for that mm. couple of years yeah. that I had it, you know, and that's something that, you know, so I, and as Crutch mentioned, you know, if you can detach from those things and have friendships and other purpose and meaning in life, I think that's really important. So when we're up, you might have, you, know, you might make up six aspects. You might be, mm. you know, the the boss at, at work, you might be a father, you might be a husband, you might be, yeah. you know, the TRL touch player on a Wednesday night, yeah. you might be part of this community group, charity, yeah. charity work. Mm. If, you, if your job starts to go pear shape, we are still, you know, four or five ways you yeah. can contribute in yeah. life. And I think that's really important. So back to the, you know, I was be all end all in rugby league and that was, that was me. That was all I was mm. wanted to do and been known for. So then that didn't go well, then again, my life just fell away. But if you can add those other aspects mm. and have that perspective yeah. and one aspect falls away, which it will in some different ways, then you still got all these other ways where you're still yeah. tick, mm. you know, getting a tick instead of a cross, mm. so to speak. Yeah, okay. So, so we... Go back to, I guess, just looking at yourself and we're touching on the, the mental health side of it. And we talked about this before we started. I remember many years ago watching a, an interview of yourself outside, I think it was, the, the Stanford and a journalist was chasing you and you weren't talking to them. Um, and then there was all this criticism about yourself afterwards. And a couple of weeks later, it came out that you had mental health issues. Um, can you tell us about that? And, how, and probably more, how did you know there was a problem? And what did you do to address that problem? Yeah, I think for me it was a, a long period of time getting to that final straw where I realised I had to make a change. Um, you know, uh, probably two years prior, my wife was suggesting I see a psychologist. She just obviously, you know, my closest person to me, see all the signs and symptoms at home and, and you know, my actions and behaviours. And um, I went and did that, but it probably felt like it was forced. I wasn't, I wasn't ready, and I didn't think that I needed to go there. I felt like she was, you know, pushing me in that sense, and didn't really get what I needed to get out of it because I wasn't going for the right reasons. Um, and it wasn't so. That was 2012, I think, and then 2014. Um, yeah, that interview, you know, range of events, my form, my you know, criticism, uh, having dealt with my childhood, having spoken to my mum in you know, over eight years, 
Uh, I was away from my grandmother who's you know, elderly and needed more support. Uh, one of my best mates had a spinal injury. Um, so I felt like you know, I had 10 things just piling up, piling up on me. And, and an hour a month, if I was lucky to talk to my psychologist at the time, that I, again, wasn't really invested in going and seeing uh, to talk about. So uh, my wife, you know, end of the day, just left one one day around that origin time, just said, look, you know, this isn't a good relationship. I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I'll try to help you and you don't want that help. So I'm not going to be there and stand, stand around basically. And I think that was a realisation then that, you know, I went back to Newcastle, um, house was half packed up, um, not many friends. I was only in Newcastle to play rugby league. That's all it was there. My best mate was in the hospital. My grandmother back at the Gold Coast, hadn't spoken to my mum. You know, I felt like I was, you know, it was just this realisation, this, you know, kind of rock bottom light bulb moment that, you know, what am I doing with my life? You know, sure, I'm, you know, realising my dream and playing at the highest level and doing all these things, but that wasn't happiness. You know, my job didn't give me happiness. You know, I didn't have the happiness from within. I didn't have the people to support me and guide me. I didn't have love and support in my life. And that was half my own doing from pushing them away. So... It was kind of that rock-bottom moment. I realised I needed to make a change. There's photos in my house of this you know, little young kid with a trophy smiling and a mm. Queensland shirt on yeah. and that little smiling kid had gone somewhere. I didn't know where. So I didn't know what I was going to get help for. I put my hand up, rang my football manager to you know, help me out a bit. I said I needed to go somewhere and do something. Um, was, yeah, 2014, there wasn't a lot of public knowledge or, or I guess around uh, a lot of people had seeked help for mental health in the past but probably not publicly. So I hadn't heard about where to go, what to do. And again, I didn't know where or what I was going for. I just wanted to make a change and that was my journey into the mental health facility. And that would have taken a lot of lot of courage to do that. Like, did you, what, like, like you said you hit rock bottom, you knew you had to do it, but I still, perhaps there was still something inside, you don't need this, you don't need it. That was fighting against it. Did it take a lot of courage to put, find and put your hand up and say, this is it, I've got to do something? I think by that point, you know, like I said, it was two years of probably, again, in Newcastle was when footy wasn't going well, so two years of football falling away and then that really affecting my life. But then I think when you really think back to my, my childhood and my other experiences, I think, you know, I really hadn't dealt with a lot of that stuff as well. So and over time, my actions and behaviours, whether it was in the media and other settings, weren't, weren't great. So then public perception of me probably wasn't great and that would wear on me as well. Um, so I just felt like I was just, just really closing in. So I think by that point, I was really, really ready. It was no yeah. um, half foot in. I was you know, open to staying as long as I had to stay at the program. I was originally thinking I'd go for two weeks and there's a three-week program, so I did the whole three weeks. I originally thought I'd go straight back to rugby league after I got out and I didn't return to rugby league for the next eight games, I think it was. Um, I was open to medication. I was open to you know, whatever I had to do because I think by that point, um, it was just that point where I'd, you know, it'd been probably 10 years, it'd been almost 10 years since um, my mum had struggled with her mental health and was diagnosed with, with depression. So there's a lot of, you know, hurt and trauma there. And you know, I think it was just a point where I find at that point where I was ready. Um, and that's the thing I think when you think about, you know, what do we do when we see a loved one or you know, a colleague going through these signs and symptoms is that all we can do really is to be there as, as a support person and show that you care and make sure that, you know, when they're ready, um, you're happy to help out and guide them because I think if we try and push uh, as much as we know maybe they need that help that it won't be yeah. um, they won't receive the help they actually mm. need because it's got to come with, with it, from within they've got to want that help to I think to benefit mm. uh, wholeheartedly and I've you know seen people come and go over the years that I've tried to help in those aspects and maybe haven't gotten um, similar I suppose progress as I've mm. been able to achieve because I haven't generally thought as you mentioned um, oh, I don't really need this or do I why do I have to be here or I'll just go and dip my toe in I don't really you know yeah. invest wholeheartedly it has to be all in or 
all out. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's what I believe. You know, that's yeah. my part. That's my own lived experience. Is that you know, I went to a psychologist for two years before the facility, and I'm sure I took a lot of things out of it. But one, it wasn't enough with all the things I was dealing with and going through at that time. And the other part was I wasn't really invested fully because mm-hmm. I felt like my wife was the one pushing me into this rather than. Mm-hmm. So I was a bit resentful to my wife, thinking, "Well, what's wrong mm-hmm. with me? That's that's mm-hmm. probably." People have already been scrutinizing me outside of my little tiny circle, and now I feel mm. like my inner circle's you know, having a go too and pushing me into something that I don't want to do. So mm. um, I can't even trust her in a sense. That's you know, yeah. again that victim mentality, fixed mindset. Took a little bit about fixed and growth mindset a lot. You know, I had to change my mindset around my you know, use my challenges from childhood as a strength. You know, use that as you know, gratitude for what I've, you know the resilience I was able to build, and you know I was able to. I, I generally believe my troubles from childhood helped me become a professional rugby league player. So mm, yeah. take that as a strength rather than poor me, why you know, why mm, have I been yeah. hard done by in that sense? And the other part too, going to the facility, I learned gratitude and empathy really, really quickly because I was in a group of 30 other people normalising the conversation around mental health and uh, mental illness and you know, drugs and alcohol and other addictions. And it was this eye-opening experience for me to realise, hey, this is normal. Everyone goes through these things and we're all yeah. here to just better ourselves. And I think that yeah. was a really eye-opening experience for me. And I, and I did feel you know, a bit of guilt and a bit of doubt going, hey, I'm playing you know, on TV in front of thousands of people getting paid well, have a roof over my head, all these things to be grateful for. There's people in this room that are, you know don't have the, um, the tools and the, some of the support that I have, yet I'm in here. You know, yeah. So it was a really eye-opening experience going, well, you know, my struggles are you know, individual for me and that's important. I need to work them out. But, hey, uh, I've got a lot to be thankful and grateful for as well. Yeah. That's really interesting stuff It's um, because that's that's the one one thing we spoke earlier about the, um, I guess, there's a bit of stigma about it and, and having the courage to, to do it. And I guess in your situation, you, you got to rock bottom, but having the courage to identify it before you get to rock bottom and do something about it earlier. Um, is a really important message for everyone. Yeah, and you didn't flick a switch, Darbs, either, did you? Because, I mean, you went in and and that was in 2014, like you said, gratitude, empathy, these things, but it wasn't a, a, a flick of a switch because when we were doing the book together, you got a, a journal that you started to keep from that 2014 visit to the clinic. So you mm-hmm. kept a journal and you said, oh, here, let, let's use some of these reflections in, in the journal yeah. as part of the, the, the background for the book. And so I was reading your journal and it was it was a raw journal. And then 2015, you're back in Brisbane, so the next year, um, Willow's born, so Kayla gives birth to your first daughter. Uh, the Broncos make the, the grand final. They have a really good season, yet... The last entry in that journal, which was sometime around December of 2015, was a really down entry and probably the most down entry of anything across those 12 plus months. But I I remember at the time, it was like the cliffhanger because when I was reading the journal, there was this, you know, December 2015, I don't think I've really felt as low as I have now. And I thought, wow. So I turned the page and there was nothing. There were no more entries. It was like the cliffhanger. But like you said, that you by this stage you were starting to move out and talk about your own journey and mm. mental health and that became your therapy, the journal got put aside. Mm. Yeah, well, that's one thing I learned in the facility when we spoke a little bit before about, you know, how many aspects make up us as a human being and I think one, one was about getting meaning and purpose, you know, whether that's empathy or getting out in the community, helping others, giving back and I knew I was a good person inside, but I had to, you know, prove to myself and others that I was that, you know, and I knew that that was a way of 
um, starting small and giving back in some way, whether it was going to you know, junior rugby league clubs across Brisbane when I come back, whether it was going to my uh, former high school down the Gold Coast, um, but little ways I could give back and, and help others. And, and also uh, whether it was doing rugby league, you know, skills and activities with the kids, whether it was sharing my story around mental health and my journey. Um, but, yeah, after the, the the gratitude journal, writing in that and the reflection, and I think that was when, you know, that last – after that last entry, it just shows you that I guess, you know, I had 12 months to work on what I'd learned in the facility. Um, but it's something that you have to keep being proactive with, these strategies mm-hmm. and, and looking after ourselves. You can think about um, you know, physical health and, you know, you, you might eat a bit more over Christmas and go, I better go to the gym, you know, in January one, you know, New Year's resolution will – if we don't work on our mental health and prioritise strategies in our life, then our mental health is going to fall apart too. That's just Mm -hmm. natural. So I had to keep working on these strategies. That just didn't happen overnight. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that one was to keep owning my story, opening and sharing my story, try to help others. But at the same time, it was really helping myself, whether it was sharing my journey again from my childhood or things, tips and tools I've learned out of the facility. Um, But consistently owning my story and owning my journey and being able to probably turn it into a strength rather than Mm -hmm. thinking of, Again, that fixed mindset and how um, some of those challenges were could be negative. I wanted to use them as a positive. And um, I think, yeah, like Crutch said, that um, the journal was my – when I didn't feel comfortable to get out in the open and share my story, I didn't have enough support in life to share it. That journal was my support. Mm. I could so that was a, a gratitude journal? I've heard a few people talk about those, keeping those. What well, I used it – I ended up using it more as just a diary in the end, but the gratitude journal is what I learned in the facility. So writing three things down you're grateful for each and every day and doing it for at least, you know, three weeks, 21 days. Uh, talk about changing your mindset from maybe fixed, confused to maybe positive in a growth mindset. And you know, a lot of research around different ways you can – Break a habit, make a habit, whether yeah. it's you know, 21 mm. days, 60 days, but at least doing that in some form. Um, but then I started to use it more as just a reflection, a bit of a journal, writing down my thoughts, my feelings, you know, things that went well, things that didn't go well. Um, again, when I was kind of trying to figure out leaving the facility that I didn't have a lot of family, didn't have a lot of people I trusted, and I had to grow my support network over time. Um, met a psychologist in 2014, a psychiatrist, sorry, that I still speak to you know, almost 10 years later today. And... He's great. Um, you know, my wife is one. You know, my football manager, you know, Crutch. There's so many people in that one support network now been able to grow and share. But in that first 12 months, I was still understanding who those people were. So I used this journal and diary to really write down those thoughts and feelings. And until I was you know, comfortable enough to get out in the community and start sharing my thoughts and feelings and, and finding those people, then that diary was my was my person. And I think that's really important is that. Yeah, that one that one strategy that might take time. Mm. Your support network, your inner circle. Who do you trust? Who can you count on? Who can give you and talk about mm. you know, good advice? And who do you take advice off? Mm. If you don't have that, you don't feel comfortable right now. Then maybe it's a journal because that's the way you. Sometimes you write it down. It might be a page or two, and you go, "Oh, actually, that's not as bad as I thought." But in my head, and mm. I'm yes, someone that manifests. internalizes, yeah, yeah, manifests, yeah. overthinks yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking, "Geez, that's bad." I remember one time. Okay, I used um, some interesting language. Just go and write in your effing journal, you know, because yeah. she knew at that point that that was something that I needed to do, you know, and yeah. that's something that maybe wouldn't um, <laughs> say to use that, that kind of language. But uh, at the end of the day, that's that's real too, right? Like at the end of the day, uh, our partners, our people that love ones at home, they cop the brunt of you know us, our people at work, and other aspects see yeah. the best of us, and those who see the worst. So she knew that was part of my. Um, process and one of my you know, recovery tools, uh, coping strategies, so, um, and it generally worked for me, yeah. that's something that I'm you know, really proud of. Yeah. That concludes part one of our men's health discussion with Darius Boyd and Michael Crutcher. 
Join us next Thursday as we conclude our conversation and have some tips and pillars which can apply to everyone's life and to improve their mental health. We'll see you next Thursday. At the Now in the Future podcast, we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions as a way of continuing to provide essential information for the community. If you have a question or would like any more information on any of our episodes or have any ideas for future episodes, simply send us an email to engagement at downsyndromeqld.org.au. That's engagement at downsyndromeqld.org.au. And we'll do our best to provide you with the information you require in one of our upcoming episodes. The Now in the Future podcast aims to support advocate for and empower people with Down syndrome both now and into the future. You have been listening to the Now and the Future podcast. For more information about this episode and many other topics related to Down syndrome, please visit the Down syndrome Queensland website at downsyndrome.org.au slash QRD. Down Syndrome Queensland, supporting people with Down Syndrome now and into the future.